Hi everyone, thanks so much for coming to this Sport and Leisure History seminar. Um, it's run by the Institute of Historical Research in conjunction with the British Society of Sports History. Um, it's great to see so many of you on Zoom and obviously we've got some people in the room as well. So this kind of new hybrid experience is a little bit of a new one for us, but um, hopefully it will work. Um, so yeah, welcome everybody. Um, I am Raph Nicholson um, and I'm the past chair of the British Society of Sports History. Um, I'm absolutely delighted that we have Max Portman from the University of Chichester here um, to talk to us this evening. Um, he is near the end of his PhD thesis, uh, of his PhD, um, and his thesis um, looks at the relationship between football clubs um, and communities in East London from the 80s until the present day. Yeah. Um, so, and he's going to be speaking to us this evening um, about an Olympic odyssey, West Ham United's journey to the Olympic Stadium, 2010 to 2017. So I'll hand over to Max in a minute, we'll do the paper and then we'll have some time for questions at the end. Thanks very much, Max. Yeah, well hopefully everyone can see the slides. We had a bit of um, technical difficulties before we started. But, um, so, firstly, before I begin, I just want to thank um, a few people. Uh, I want to thank the BSSH for giving me the opportunity to present my work. I want to thank Jeff, Amanda and Raf for inviting me to present my work this evening. Uh, I want to thank my supervisor, the supervisor Dion Georgiou, who supported me throughout this. Uh, and I want to thank my mum, my dad, my brother, who's here in the room with me, and everybody else who's listened to me ramble on about this PhD for the last four years. So the paper I'm presenting tonight regards West Ham's journey to the Olympic Stadium from 2010 to 2017. It's taken from my PhD thesis, which is an institutionally focused study of West Ham United as a nexus of communities since 1981. Now, if you're not a follower of football, West Ham are a football club in East London, attendance of the Olympic Stadium, originally built for the 2012 Olympics in London. But the journey from West Ham originally bidding for the stadium to moving to the stadium in 2016 was a long and arduous one, filled with drama, incompetence and scandal that feels more like an episode of EastEnders at times. <laughs> I will be tracking this journey chronologically starting with some brief background before 2010, before working through the developments that emerged throughout these seven years. But if you're wondering why I've continued the timeline until 2017, if West Ham moved to the stadium in 2016, there's a reason for that. An independent review published by the current Mayor of London's office in 2017 provides a fitting conclusion to everything covered this evening. It summarises how West Ham are dragged into a story that involves local and national government involvement, personal relationships, and a fair deal of incompetence, all of which are threatening to derail the Olympic legacy that everyone involved is so desperate to maintain. So I'll give you a brief history before 2010. The possibility of West Ham moving to the Olympic Stadium, which will be referred to in the PowerPoint as the OS, was first mooted as early as 2001. Then club director Chris Manhire stated that the club had been approached by a consortium in the very early days of launching a bid for the 2012 Olympics. The club's stance at the time is a rather simple, well considering. However, in 2002, club legend and then fellow club director Sir Trevor Brookin disagrees with this idea, stating that it is a distant, if not inconceivable, idea. 
a major development that obviously needs mentioning is London winning the bid for the 2012 Olympics in 2005. And following the Icelandic takeover of the club in 2006, the Olympic Stadium is mentioned as a new home for the club. However, this is one of many venues that the new owners were exploring. Before West Ham is taken over in late 2006, then London Mayor Ken Liverson states that the, London, the Olympic Stadium will never be a football stadium and will be purely for athletics. And in February 2007, the 2012 Olympic Board supports this idea. West Ham end this interest in the stadium despite holding formative talks. And as a key player in everything I'll be speaking about tonight, another big development is the election of Boris Johnson as London Mayor in 2008. And a year later, in 2009, reports emerged that some within the government are becoming anxious about the legacy of the Olympic Stadium, believing that the stadium could, could become what is often referred to as a white elephant. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the phrase white elephant, it, def it is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as a thing that is useless and is no longer needed, although it may have cost a lot of money. In an attempt to quell these concerns, then Mayor of London, Boris Johnson, expresses his desire for a football club to become tenants of the stadium following the 2012 Olympics. And this is just the news that David Gold and David Sullivan wanted to hear. 2010 begins with David Sullivan and David Gold buying 51% of West Ham United in January of that year. This gives them control of the club. And very quickly, the pair made their intentions known about where they see West Ham playing their football in the future. Speaking at the press conference to announce their ownership of the club, Sullivan states that the pair and West Ham are hoping to persuade the government to let the club move into the stadium. In response, then Shadow Sports Minister Hugh Robinson, representing the Conservatives, supports this statement by the pair and says that any legacy solution for the Olympic Stadium has to be commercially viable and that probably means that a Premier League football club will be there alongside its athletics use. The Olympic Park Legacy Company responds, that, responds by saying it will keep all options open. Upon declaring their official interest to becoming tenants of the stadium in March 2010, West Ham, in a joint bid with Newham Council, state that their vision for the stadium is, and I quote, the venue would be a vibrant centre of sport, culture and education featuring both football and athletics. Open day and night, all year round, it would have an active community use, inspiring learning and achievement and helping to create a better quality of life for tens of thousands. The election of the coalition government in May 2010 is another important development as it signals a change in how the Olympic legacy is perceived. Whereas the previous Labour government had dabbled with the idea of introducing football into the stadium alongside athletics, albeit on a casual basis, this new government, made up of Conservatives, such as David Cameron on the left, with a few Lib Dems, such as Luke Clegg on the right, believed football which should be a permanent fixture at the stadium to ensure its viability. West Ham welcomed this change of stance and officially submit a bid to Downing Street on the 30th of September 2010. As shown in the slide, children from schools in Newham appear alongside then first team players Scott Parker, who is on the left, Carlton Cole, who is on the right, and Mark Noble in the middle. The first bidding process. 
To decide who would get the Olympic Stadium, the Olympic Park Legacy Company, who is going to be referred to as the OPLC throughout this PowerPoint, launched a competitive bidding process that would decide who was the most viable option for the stadium. So who was interested? Over 100 parties expressed an interest in becoming tenants of the Olympic Stadium, according to the OPLC. This included the likes of Lane Orient and Essex County Cricket Club. However, the two most viable options par West Ham were UK Athletics and Tottenham Hotspur. UK Athletics wanted a purely athletic stadium, hoping to make the Olympic Stadium its national home for athletics, whereas Tottenham wanted to knock down the stadium and rebuild it solely for football, improving the athletic stadium at Crystal Palace instead. Now, for any bidder for the Olympic Stadium, the OPLC established a criteria of five, five different points. These were, number one, that the new tenant should provide a viable long-term solution that provided value for money. Number two, that it would secure a partner with the expertise to operate a legacy solution. Number three, it would reopen the stadium as quickly as possible. Number four, it would allow flexible usage. And number five, it would make the stadium a distinctive physical symbol that supported regeneration. And in November 2010, two parties were shortlisted to compete for the tenancy of the Olympic Stadium. In fact, it's almost fitting that West Ham and Tottenham Hotspur were competing against each other as their fierce rivals. And this competing for the stadium would no doubt just add another dimension to this rivalry. So did the clubs meet the criteria? As you can see here, West Ham ticked all five boxes, whereas Tottenham could only tick four. Their inability to be flexible in their use of the stadium would eventually cost them getting the stadium in the future. The crux of Tottenham's bid was a decision to knock down the Olympic Stadium and build it exclusively as a football stadium with a 60,000 person capacity. They proposed improving the athletic stadium at Crystal Palace to maintain an athletics legacy in London. Improving Crystal Palace would have been good for two areas of London, but it did not add to the legacy that the OPLC wanted and that West Ham were offering. Moreover, it would damage local communities in Stratford and Tottenham if Tottenham had won the bid. Stratford would only be in use during the football season and local businesses in Tottenham would suffer without the matchday income that would be provided by White Hart Lane. But Tottenham had a potential other reason for bidding for the Olympic Stadium. Wanting to build a new modern stadium on the site of White Hart Lane, Tottenham had been met by slow moving processes from Harringay Castle, the Mayor of London's office and the government over planning permission. So, the, Olympic, the bid for the Olympic Stadium was either a genuine bid to acquire a new stadium or a ploy to get their planning permission put, pushed through. And this is something I'll cover in due course. It was very clear from early on that the OPLC and other influential figures on the London 2012 leadership team favoured West Ham United. Lord Sebastian Coe, chairman of the 2012 Olympics, stated that Britain's sporting reputation would be trashed if the stadium didn't include a future for athletics. And, the club, and athletics was something that West Ham were willing to keep at the stadium, which gave them the edge over Tottenham. The clubs pledged to keep the stadium as a stadium for the community, 
seemed like they were continuing to tick all the boxes that the OPLC were looking for in the new tenant. And now we enter 2011. We now enter a new year that would see a lot of developments, but unfortunately, none of them good. In March 2011, West Ham were unanimously voted to take over the Olympic Stadium by the OPLC. This infuriated Tottenham, who launched a judicial review with the High Court. But Tottenham did not launch a case against West Ham, however, against Newham Council. They felt that the £40 million that Newham had pledged to West Ham's bid was worth investigating as it would not yield a return and prove detrimental to the taxpaying public like myself, everyone in this room and all you lovely people on Zoom. Newham stated that the £40 million contribution was personally underwritten by West Ham co-chairman David Gold and David Sullivan, meaning that the pair would personally finance this extra £40 million if Newham were to ever withdraw their financial contribution. Tottenham's legal challenge was backed by Leighton Orion, who also challenged Newham's pledge, but also felt that West Ham moving to the Olympic Stadium would be detrimental to support and competition in the area. In 2011, West Ham played 3.7 miles away from Leighton Orient, and moving to Olympic Stadium would have brought them a mile closer. But up to this point, it had never been a problem before, so why was it now? It's worth remembering that Leighton Orient had also failed in a bid to take over the Olympic Stadium, so it could just be sour grapes. Or did Leighton Orient have an ulterior motive? While the judicial review was rejected, another scandal threatened to throw the bidding process into doubt. This is Dion Knight and Ian Tompkins. Now, why are you wondering if why, now why are you wondering why two separate employees from different parties have anything to do with this bidding process at all? I must clarify: this is not a legislative love story, but it's how their love seemingly undermines the whole bidding process. Nine Tompkins had been in the relationship since 2008, and this was known to all parties involved. However, what wasn't known was that Dion Knight had been supposedly providing consultancy work to West Ham too. This was confirmed by the fact that West Ham had paid her £20,000, and as a result, Knight and Tompkins are both suspended pending investigations. Tottenham, the aggravated party in everything, felt this has further proved how the bidding process had been further compromised. But Tottenham were not innocent in this matter. The information provided about Knight had been handed to the OPLC by a private investigator, or PI, that Tottenham's legal team for their stadium bid had hired to investigate people on West Ham United's bid. It would emerge in 2013 that this PI had illegally tapped the phones of Miss Knight and West Ham Vice Chairman Karen Brady, as well as Miss Knight's bank account, to obtain information that could derail West Ham's bid for the Olympic Stadium. However, the investigation into Miss Knight found no wrongdoing, and that her relationship with Mr Tompkins had no deciding factor on her decision to take on consultancy work for West Ham United, both returned to their jobs after the review ended. But as this scandal ended, two others appeared. The day after Dion Knight was found innocent, Tottenham and Leighton Orient were finally granted a judicial review after being told by a judge that they had an arguable case. 
Barry Hearn, late in Orange chairman at the time and also a multi-millionaire, bizarrely called it a great day for the little man, which I'm all sure you can see the irony in. <laughs> This is followed by an anonymous complaint made to the European Commission about the legality of the bid in September 2011 regarding the issue of state aid. The complaint was later found to be made by OPLC stadium architect Steve Lawrence. Lawrence stated in a 2012 interview that if this judicial review had gone ahead, West Ham, Newham and the government would be on the losing side. And a month later, West Ham's bid for the stadium would collapse due to legal paralysis. The judicial review subsequently ended as a result and has never been publicly published. Immediately after this, Boris Johnson stated that a new bidding process would begin and that West Ham would almost certainly win again if they had bid. However, the difference in this new bidding process would be that clubs would be renting the stadium from the government as the government and mayor's office adopted what is called a public sector model. Where the first bid had sought to give the winning bidder the tenancy to operate the stadium out of their own pocket, this new public sector model meant that the government would now burden the majority of the cost for the stadium, and this becomes a very important point later on. Shortly before the state aid complaint and Tottenham winning their judicial review, Boris Johnson and the Mayor of London's office finally grant permission for Tottenham to, to, uh, to finally grant planning permission for Tottenham to begin work on their new stadium in August 2011. And after the judicial review collapses in October 2011, Tottenham ends their formal interest in the Olympic Stadium. Tottenham's proposed new stadium would eventually become the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium that opened in 2019 and what hopefully you can see on the slide now. Now at this point, with everything going on, I would not blame you if you felt like this. But unfortunately people, were not even halfway yet. 2012, a year definitely more positive than the last. With a new bidding process underway, West Ham would once again make a bid for the Olympic Stadium in March 2012. By July, four bidders were shortlisted just before the start of the Olympic Games. They are West Ham United, Formula One, who were seeking to add an additional British circuit to their season, the University College of Football Business, who were looking to add a new campus, and Leighton Orient. But out of these four candidates, West Ham are still considered the most viable option. And in July and August of 2012, the 2012 Paralympics and Olympic Games are a roaring success. Britain win 185 medals that summer, and it raises the expectations of what's to come next. Following the success of the 2012 Games, the legacy of the Olympic Stadium is now more important than ever. In December 2012, the London Legacy Development Corporation, or the LLDC, as they'll be referred to for the rest of this PowerPoint, choose West Ham as their preferred candidate to take over the Olympic Stadium. However, they specified that the club had three months to conclude a deal for the stadium, or they would proceed with a plan B without football. But Boris Johnson, who now headed the LLDC and who stated that West Ham would almost certainly win the bid again back in November 2011, had created a weak negotiating position for the LLDC, who had no real viable candidates to challenge West Ham for the stadium. 2013. 
Three months and 17 days later, to be exact, the club finally agreed on a deal to become tenants of the Olympic Stadium. However, due to the games taking place and other delays, the stadium would not be ready until 2016. But the club did not care. They had the stadium. And finally, it seemed like all this controversy surrounding the stadium was at an end. And everyone celebrated with this rather bizarre photo opportunity. However, <laughs> as you've no doubt come to realise, nothing is ever quiet for too long involved in the Olympic Stadium, and there is always some form of controversy lurking. When it was announced that an extra £25 million of public money would be used to further fund West Ham's move to the stadium, Conservative London Assembly member Andrew Boff, as you can see on the screen, criticised this by stating in an interview with newspaper City AM that it is a disgrace that another £25 million from the public purse will now be used to prop up this agreement. In response, West Ham co-chairman David Gold defended the deal and this extra injection of funding by stating, for the taxpayer's point of view, the solution you've heard today was the only solution. We've come to an equitable deal, a fair deal. But whilst David Gold, West Ham and the government are rather happy with what seems like an established conclusion to everything that has happened so far, not everyone was satisfied with this result. Enter Barry Hearn, then Leighton Orient Chairman. Feeling like a wrong party in all of this, Leighton Orient once again threatened legal action against West Ham. However, this time it was over the issue of ground sharing. Barry Hearn believed that Lady Orion's proposals to discuss any possibilities of a ground share had been ignored and not properly explored, which had broken rules set out by the LLDC. A war of words ensues between West Ham and Lady Orion over the matter, which led Lord Harris, who was chair of the Olympic Legacy in the House of Lords at the time, to tell both clubs that they should stop squabbling my children. After this comment, the LLDC announced that they would enter talks regarding a ground share in December 2013. However, nothing ever comes to fruition. As mentioned earlier, Leighton Orient and Barry Hearn may have had an ulterior motive to wanting the Olympic Stadium. As a promoter of various other sports, Barry Hearn maybe saw the Olympic Stadium as a venue to host events without having to work through a lot of red tape. This would have been especially beneficial to Barry Hearn's boxing interests through his promotional company Matchroom Boxing, which is run by his son Eddie Hearn and is part of the wider Matchroom Sport empire that the Hearn family have built. Getting the Olympic Stadium would have ensured a regular UK venue for boxing events for the Hearn family. But with no offence to Leighton Orient, they were never a viable option for the stadium. At the time, Leighton Orient had an average attendance of only 4,000 fans per game, and it would have been a tall order to regularly sell out the Olympic Stadium through football alone. And that is why their interest never seemed like it was for football, but for the business interests of Barry Hearn instead. Coincidentally, Leighton Orient's interest in the stadium would end when Barry Hearn sells the club in July 2014. 2014 and 2015. For the next two years, things were relatively calm regarding the Olympic Stadium. There was no regular drama as we'd seen before, and we'll see again in the future, as the conversion of the stadium had gotten underway, ready for West Ham's arrival in 2016. 
Most reports released during these two years are concerning the rising total cost of the Olympic Stadium. In 2014, this cost is estimated to be £619 million. It reaches £701 million in 2015, with the post-game con post conversion of the stadium to make it suitable for football costing £272 million at the time. However, there is a bit of positive news about the Olympic Stadium. It was praised for its hosting of six matches during the 2015 Rugby World Cup, as well as hosting the anniversary athletic games, highlighting its effectiveness as a multi-sports venue. But would it be able to host football? As you may know, athletics and rugby crowds often mix, so there is little concern for crowd trouble. But with the tribalism of football, where fans can be hostile towards one another, would the stadium be able to accommodate and provide adequate security to combat such matters as watch your space. An important development to mention is a freedom of information request made by the Charlton Athletic Supporters Trust in September 2014 regarding the finances for the deal surrounding the stadium. The petition supporting this request generated a lot of momentum. There were 30,000 signatures and backing from Supporters Trust from 14 other football clubs across the country. And this pressure Came, came good, as a year later the Freedom of Information request was granted, with the report set to be published before West Ham moved into the stadium the following year. The report is eventually released in April 2016, three months before West Ham are due to move into the stadium. 2016. With the publication of the report into the deal between the LLDC and West Ham, it caused huge public derision from inside football as well as outside of it, with financial contributions released as to who was paying for the stadium and who would be responsible for the stadium's upkeep. People were shocked at how little West Ham were paying towards the stadium, with only a £15 million contribution towards the whole process. To give you a rundown of how little West Ham were paying, here's a few figures. The total cost of the stadium was £752 million, with conversion costs to make the stadium suitable for football eventually totalling £323 million. Additionally, the overall government contribution was £687 million, and this can be broken down by contributions from different departments. The Department for Culture, Media and Sport, commonly referred to as the DCMS, contributed 38.7 million, 25 million pounds came from the Department for Community and Local Government, and 41.3 million pounds would be covered by the LLDC. The largest contribution to the stadium came from a loan provided by the National Lottery to the government with an estimated figure of 425 million pounds, which according to recent reports published in September this year, has not been begun to be paid back yet. As shown, Newham Council's contribution was £14 million and West Ham's contribution, the smallest contribution, was £15 million. Now this leaves us with £167 million unaccounted for. Where this money came from is still either unknown or has not been made public record yet and most likely came from other sources. And just ignore that other one. As the news of the deal broke, as news of the deal broke in April 2016, everyone had an opinion as to how this affected West Ham, the government, and more importantly, the taxpaying public 
who had been made to bear the brunt of the huge cost of the, huge cost of the stadium had accumulated. Here's a few opinions on the deal. Then Arsenal manager Arsene Wenger was actually one of the few people to congratulate West Ham on receiving the stadium, telling West Ham, well done, you have won in the lottery. You do not need to sweat like I did for long years and fight for every pound. With Wenger referring to the £390 million move that Arsenal had made to the Emirates Stadium in 2006, which had financially restricted the club for many years as Arsenal had personally financed this move by themselves. The Taxpayers Alliance gave a slightly more balanced view on the matter, stating, You cannot blame the club for taking advantage of the ludicrously generous taxpayer subsidiary they have been handed on a plate. The body instead put the blame on the government, further adding to their statement, We should be directing our anger and awkward questions at those responsible for offering a deal for which most clubs would have sold their star striker. And finally, our old friend Barry Hearn makes a return to join the widespread criticism of the government to eloquently state, my dog could have negotiated a better deal for the taxpayer. That must be one clever dog. So what was this deal that everyone was becoming so angry over? Let us take a look at some of the aspects of the deal, starting with what can be considered as the pros for the LLDC. Firstly, the LLDC would keep the first £4 million of any naming rights deal for the stadium over a 20-year period. This would then be split in half between the LLDC and West Ham for anything over their initial £4 million. The first half a million pounds of catering profit would also go to the LLDC, and anything over that amount was a 70-30 split in favour of the LLDC. But there were also financial booms available to the LLDC varying on West Ham's future success. As shown in the slide, additional financial booms for the LLDC would be dependent on the varying success of West Ham. This ranges from £25,000 for a 10th place finish in the Premier League, as you can see in the top right hand corner, to a maximum of £1 million if West Ham were to ever win the Champions League. It should be mentioned, as it is not included in this slide, that written into the Olympic Stadium deal is an agreement that West Ham can use the stadium for 25 home games per season, 19 of which would always be used for the, Olympic, for the Premier League season. However, as West Ham have been in European competitions for the past two years, in addition to domestic cup competitions, the club have gone over this 25-game maximum. In these instances, it has been agreed that the club will pay the LLDC £100,000 for every additional home game that the club play at the stadium over the allotted 25. Obviously, we've seen the LLDC's major con, as the deal had shown that the LLDC had taken on the majority of the financial burden for the, for the stadium. But what were these burdens exactly? The LLDC would be liable for all running costs of the stadium, providing everything for stewards and security on match days, to some other match day items such as corner flags. And as a result of taking on this financial burden, this would result in major losses for the LLDC, with an estimated figure upwards of £20 million per year, which cost, in turn cost the taxpaying public, like you and me, a lot more money to staunch the losses of the stadium. As shown, this deal had been rather beneficial to West Ham, 
who had acquired a state-of-the-art stadium for dirt cheap. But what were some of the main pros that West Ham could boast? The club would only pay £2.5 million a year in rent. They were not liable for the majority of running costs for the Olympic Stadium. They had received a contemporary stadium by paying very, very little. And even with the financial outlays that, would have, that West Ham would have to pay for using the Olympic Stadium, depending on their success, it was still a rather low fee to pay for receiving the Olympic Stadium. But with every pro, there comes a con, and this was no different to West Ham. Renting the stadium meant that the club had very little collateral to rely upon if it ever found itself in financial trouble. This meant surviving mainly off TV broadcast and commercial income, as well as a 19-day window at the Olympic Stadium in which they could make a profit, according to Kieran Maguire of the University of Liverpool. However, when one would think that larger stadiums generate larger profits, the club would only earn £200,000 more than they would have earned at their old stadium, the Bowling Ground, in the 2018-2019 season, meaning that the grass may not always be greener when it comes to being chosen to take over a state-of-the-art stadium. Additionally, this move away from the club's historic ground of the Bowling Ground, where it had been since 1904, meant that the club would be leaving behind a community that had been ingrained in for over a hundred years. Charles Corr, an academic, once wrote that for better or worse, West Ham never allowed itself to lose the personal attributes that make it a club. However, what West Ham did to the community around their old stadium could have even made Corr second-guess himself. With many businesses worried about the future after West Ham left the bowling ground and the immediate Upton Park area, co-chairman David Gold promised to protect long-standing businesses in the community that relied on match day income. You could even argue that this was personal to David Gold, who had grown up in the community, having been born in Green Street, opposite the bowling ground, in 1936. However, when the move came, the community was abandoned and many of these businesses have closed since. This infuriated businesses and fans alike who felt that the club, who have long been emblematic of the community and have even prided themselves as a club of the community, had reneged on a promise to protect these businesses by betraying a community that have long supported the club. Matthew Taylor of De Montfort University argues that football clubs can provide an important sense of collective identity which could merge with and act alongside other significant social, geographical and ideological identities. And this is backed in, 20, in a Guardian article from 2018 by journalist Andrew Anthony, who suggested that the move to the London Stadium was in many ways a severance of the ties to the past of East London, of which the bowling ground was the last bastion. Shown here are two long-term businesses in the area that were forced to close down after the club moved away from the area. Ken's Caff on the left was the first caff you'd immediately see walking up Green Street towards Upton Park Tube Station. It was forced to close in 2020 after 53 years of business. The other business, Nathan's, a pie and mash restaurant that had been in business in, since 1938, was also forced to close in 2018 after 80 years of business showing how the move away and abandonment of these businesses has led to a somewhat destruction of the community. Moreover, it shows that the abandonment of West Ham's community values, something that the club has mythologised for many years, by allowing these businesses to close. But, 
There is a counter-argument to be made that these businesses were essentially out of time, and it was solely West Ham's place in the community that maintained them as a nostalgic reminder of an East London that has long since ended. Therefore, the club only leaving the area meant that these businesses, especially Nathan's, no longer served a purpose to the community except continuity. In the opening weeks of West Ham's move to the stadium, there were multiple events of crowd trouble. This was due to a lack of infrastructure at the stadium as radio equipment that is used by emergency services was not yet installed. Therefore, there was a lack of police presence at the stadium. This was finally settled in October 2016 and crowd trouble has mostly disappeared since then. But the crowd trouble at the stadium in those opening few weeks just added to any bad publicity that the stadium had already garnered. Here's a picture of the crowd trouble in question, with a Seoul West Ham fan, as you can see at the top, looking to instigate trouble with Watford fans in September 2016. But this was just the beginning of a long list of events that have plagued West Ham since their move. Despite somewhat accepting the stadium, now known as the London Stadium, as their home, there are a sizable number of West Ham fans who do not feel settled after six years there. And the move has led to animosity between fans and the club, which has been heightened twice in 2018 and 2020, with protests inside the stadium in 2018. The next two slides show this animosity towards the building. Look at this flag, as you can see here. And the second picture, part of the protest inside the stadium in 2018 during a match against Burnley. But I'm digressing. An important development that happens in 2016 is the election of Sadiq Khan as Mayor of London, replacing the outgoing Boris Johnson. One of Khan's first orders of business is to launch an independent review into the Olympic Stadium deal and understand how the financial burden had been put upon the taxpaying public. This would lead to the publication of the report in December 2017. The 2017 Wall Stevens report is a fitting place to end this paper and to an extent serves as the conclusion to this paper with the findings made covering everything I've discussed so far. Firstly, the 2017 report tracked the entire process of the Olympics from winning the bid in 2005 to 2017. It suggests that the original decision to not host football there was founded, as Olympic stadiums since the 1920s have been reliant on the state for funding. The report itself referenced the 1928 Olympics in Amsterdam, where the Olympic Stadium in Holland is still relying on public funding. Therefore, the OPLC, who would have been the body responsible for the Olympic legacy at the time, believed it was more financially sustainable to keep the stadium solely for athletics. However, this would have been financially worse over the long term, which is why football became the next viable option. Now, the report on the bidding processes stated that Tottenham's bid was actually very sound, but its inability to support the Olympic legacy for athletics cost the club the stadium. It also supports the decision to withdraw the agreement for West Ham after the first bidding process and the state, compl the state aid complaint to avoid further legal delays. However, it states that the problems emerged with the stadium when the second bidding process was announced by Boris Johnson in November 2011. 
mentioned earlier, the decision to adopt what is called a public sector model put a financial burden on the government and this set things right. Moreover, it was discovered that the Mayor of London's office, led by Boris Johnson, had done little to no in-depth analysis of the major financial implications of this reproach and that the office had glossed over any problems to avoid this stadium becoming a white elephant. Furthermore, Johnson's suggestion of West Ham almost certainly getting the stadium created a weak negotiating position in the second bid and the report states that Boris Johnson should have considered a no-deal option. Now, I know what you're thinking. Boris Johnson fumbling a deal when no deal was an option. Now, why does that sound familiar? But the most damning information from this report was that the stadium was forecast to lose £24 million in 2017 with losses due to be upwards of £20 million per year. This heavily affects taxpayers like us, as the stadium is fundamentally a huge burden that has no viable solution to really staunch its losses or turn a profit. Obviously, seeking the political opportunity to point out the predecessors of his failure and his political adversary, London Mayor Sadiq Khan would state, it reveals a bungled decision-making process that has the previous mayor's fingerprints all over it. He would further state that Boris Johnson clearly panicked in regard to negotiating a deal to protect the stadium's legacy before concluding with a rather simplistic cutting remark of who simply couldn't make this up. Whilst Johnson himself didn't directly respond, a source representing Johnson would state Mistakes belonged to Khan's Labour predecessor, Ken Livingstone, and the Blair government. The source was later read, If Steve Khan wants to try and blame someone, he should blame his new Labour pals and the old Labour mayor for their catastrophic planning failures. However, what the source fails to remember was that most of the Olympic legacy fell under Johnson's tenure as London mayor from 2008 to 2016. Therefore, Johnson's gamble to shift the blame back onto the Labour government has somewhat backfired. So to summarise that, Sadiq Khan blames Boris Johnson, who blames Ken Livingstone, and Johnson also blames Khan, who blames Johnson. Have we all got that? Good. And this is what has happened since, with the stadium being used as a political football. The Conservative government praises the stadium's legacy. Well, yeah. yeah. While Labour have criticised the huge financial costs that the stadium has incurred as a result of the Conservatives adopting the public sector model. But while the two political factions essentially play the blame game with one another, what is West Ham's reaction to the 2017 report and what is their role in this Olympic Stadium soap opera according to the same report? Essentially, West Ham are free of blame in this entire process, with the report stating that West Ham cannot be blamed for taking advantage of such a beneficial deal. Moreover, as a result of this report, Sadiq Khan takes over leadership of the LLDC. West Ham welcome what they call renewed leadership and direction, and that the club welcome the mayor's decision to step in and deliver this. But why had West Ham allowed poor leadership and direction up until this point? Could it have been on purpose? As shown in the slide, two of the key leadership figures at West Ham have been shown to have ties to the Conservative Party. 
Firstly, Cameron Brady, vice chairman of the club, was granted a lifetime peerage with the Conservatives in 2014, earning the title Baroness Brady and a lifetime seat in the House of Lords. Also, David Sullivan, co-chairman of West Ham United, has donated £100,000 to the Conservative Party since 2019 for his property development company, Cungate. This has included a £75,000 donation to Boris Johnson's general election campaign in 2019 and an additional £25,000 donation to Liz Truss leadership bid for the Conservative Party this summer, which I'm sure some of you will agree wasn't worth the money. These obvious links to the Conservative Party, which, who have been the incumbent government for throughout most of this process, raises questions about allowing poor leadership to continue with the stadium for Brady and Sullivan's own personal interests. It also raises doubts about the bias that West Ham could have been shown throughout everything due to the link of these two key figures to the political parties in power. Which brings us on to our conclusion. While these last 10 or so slides have aided us in our conclusions, there are a few key points that just need to be tied up. Number one, the Olympic Stadium was always fundamentally flawed as no one could decide on what its legacy should be. Number two, government incompetency only made matters worse and a decision to let pay taxpayers pay for the stadium was that changing point for the worse. And number three and finally, West Ham cannot be blamed for getting the stadium. However, how they got it is still up for debate and in a wider context, it leaves us with an Olympic legacy that has more questions than answers, 10 years after the Games had finished. Thank you very much for um, listening to me talk this evening, and I hope you enjoyed it all. Thank you.